Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Think about your worst nightmare becoming reality. You're living the life of your dreams. You're part of one of the most elite and admired special forces units in the world. You are a Navy clearance diver with the Australian Defense Forces. One day, you're swimming in Sydney Harbor, when suddenly, without warning, a massive nine-foot bull shark slams into you, sinks his teeth into your arms and legs, and pulls you underwater. Fighting is futile, and you come to terms with this being the day you're going to die. But then, you don't. Miraculously, you slip out of the shark's grip and swim to safety. You're alive, but in the process of surviving, you lost your hand and leg. Literally, within seconds, everything you thought constituted your identity was ripped from you. But then you rise through the pain, the fear, and the desolation, and you recreate yourself bigger, better, and badder in every aspect than before. This is the incredible story of overcoming unimaginable adversity and fear, and in spite of it all, achieving everything you've ever dreamed of. This is the story of Paul de Gelder. Ariana Summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. I've had the great fortune to meet incredible people in my life, Paul, but you are literally the badass to kick all badasses. I've, you must have me confused with someone else. <laughs> You're being humble. What you've overcome is absolutely staggering, and it's an honor to have you here. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so what's so remarkable about you is not that you were attacked by a shark. What's remarkable about you is what you've done after. And um, instead of jumping right into that inciting incident, which is Hollywood speak for the event that put everything in motion, I want to talk about where you actually come from, because I think that's very important in order to get the full scope of who you are now. And your childhood and teenage years are movie material in themselves. <laughs> this is a nightmare. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree too. I, when I travel and speak, I always regardless of who it is that I'm speaking to, I always do a little bit of a character development for myself as well. Um, because I guess what the public see of me is this kind of crazy guy that does all these amazing things. Um, but life wasn't always like that. And I wasn't always a leader and determined and driven. Um, a lot of the time growing up, I was just a train wreck. Uh, yeah, it was, it was not, I wouldn't go back to those years for anything in the world. Uh, it was really hard. And your parents probably wouldn't either. I am. Hell no. <laughs> no they had four of us. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I was listening to the audio version of your book, No Time for Fear, which is outstanding, by the way. You narrate it yourself and it pulls you right into the story. Awesome. And what I got out of this was you were this kid who was oh, so into excitement and adventure. And at the same time, you grew up in a very strict school system, a very strict type of family environment. And this need for stimulus and experiencing life was just not fed. So you acted out of it. Yeah, yeah, somewhat. Um, Dad was a cop. Uh, he was away a lot of the time working, and so Mum was the disciplinarian of four children. So you obviously, right from the start, you got to be on top of that, having four kids with f so much energy. Um, and so we just we got into a lot of mischief, and it was you know it was harmless mischief to begin with. Um, some things we never got sick. We just kind of all got stitches. Uh, <laughs> I stabbed myself in the hand accidentally scraping grip tape off my skateboard. I got bitten on the face by a dog and had 18 stitches in my face. And, you know, all of us just were always in the hospital getting stitched up for some manner of reason. Um, but it was all kind of harmless stuff until we shipped off from Melbourne to Canberra. Dad got posted up to the capital of Australia. Um, and while it's a very pretty place, it's very clean, uh, there wasn't a lot to do for young adventurous minds. Um, and when you, you know, when you're... I guess 10 to 14, it's okay. You kind of, you're still a child. You're still just hanging out with your friends and doing dumb stuff. But then you hit that 15 year mark and you start thinking, I've done all this dumb stuff. Let's try some, you know, some new things, some new excitement. And that's where it gets, you know, the turning point of who you become as an adult. And I chose a really wrong path. And you had quite a rough time too. I learned that you had self-consciousness problems, which is quite interesting seeing who you are now. You were bullied. You even cut yourself at the time. What was going on in your head? Yeah, I, I experienced bullying a little bit um, when I was younger. Um, and then when we first moved to Canberra, we went to a really cool school. It was like seven boys in my whole grade at school and everyone was quite tight and I didn't get bullied at all then but then we you you hit year seven and you go off to high school and it was a 1200 kids in the school um big rugby school so everyone a lot of guys big fit guys and I was skinny short <laughs> slow massive big ears and a face full of freckles so I was just a very easy target for everyone and I didn't know how to fight back um, and so I took it very personally and I didn't feel like I could trust anyone. I didn't feel like I had any friends. Um, the school system was run by the Christian brothers. So very strict. And then the discipline at home as well. And it all, it just all got on top of me and I felt like I had no control. Um, I hated life. I hated school. Um, and my only outlet at one point was slashing my arms and I had a little hobby knife that you use for cutting apart plane, plane um, models and things like that. And it was kind of busted up from all the models that I'd been busting, uh, been cutting up. So it wasn't very sharp. And I used to use that to slash up my arms. Um, and it, it wasn't through any desire to die. You know, I thought about suicide, but it was never really something that I would have followed through with. Uh, we were brought up in the Catholic church also. And so I was always told that um, suicide was the cardinal sin. It was like mm -hmm. throwing the gift of life back in God's face and you instantly went to hell. And so while I had my doubts about organized religion, I didn't want to risk it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I just used it as an outlet 
you know, the pain was the one thing I could control in my life and no one ever knew about it. I kept it very well hidden. Um, but fortunately it didn't last that long. It lasted maybe about six months. And then one of my friend's older brothers introduced us to kickboxing and that became my outlet then. So that was, you were about 16 years old when yeah. you got into kickboxing, right? Yeah. So it probably also stopped the bullying, but got you into a lot of more fights, it I guess. It did. It gave me great confidence. Um, it taught me how to throw punches and elbows mm -hmm. and kicks and also how to take hits as well. So I became very resilient and very strong. And um, I never really thought about using it that much until one of the, the bullies at school said something very derogatory about my mom. And I went to confront him about it and he tried to hit me and so I elbowed him in the face and he did a full 360 and passed out unconscious. And I think I was as shocked as he was, to be honest. But after that, there was no more bullying. And with that came, a, I guess, a very arrogant sense of power whereby um, I, didn't, I didn't have to take shit from anyone anymore. And at, at, in Australia, the legal drinking age is 18. So obviously we start drinking at 16, you know, <laughs> like course. Americans, you know, legal age is 21. You probably start at 16 anyway as well. So, um, and so we'd get drunk and we'd go out into the streets and we'd fight. And I probably got beat up more than I actually beat anyone up. I got thrown in head first into a tree from a bouncer once and I didn't have a great track record, but it was that adventure and I was with this group of guys that I'd been training with and we were getting into mischief and having fun and I just, I didn't know when to stop and I kept drinking and that led to smoking. Well, I was already smoking cigarettes. Um, marijuana was decriminalized. It was the only place in Australia where marijuana was decriminalized, which is funny because it's the only place where the uh, politicians sit as well. And so smoking, drinking, marijuana, going to the clubs underage, Uh, and there was a lot of drugs there. So there was speed and there was coke and it just became a jumble and a haze of substance abuse and um, trying to fund it through stealing, um, whether that be shoplifting or breaking into cars and selling what we sold. And I became a very poor example to my younger siblings. And so I flunked year 11, I flunked year 12, And my parents had had enough. And my dad called me at my friend's house one day because I was barely going home. He said, I'm sick of your shit. Come and get your stuff and fuck off. So that ripped the rug right out of under right you. All of a sudden, yeah. you had nothing surrounding you anymore. Pure freedom, so to speak. What yeah. did you do with that? I had that freedom that I always wanted from my parents and the establishment. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing. And I was, I, it came to a, a crashing reality shit, what do I do now? Now I don't have a home. I don't have a job. I don't have a great high school education. And that, that reality came down on me like a ton of bricks. And I was very fortunate that two girls from Indonesia took me in and let me live with them. Their parents paid for them to, to study in Australia and had an apartment for them. And so I lived with them for about a year, maybe a year and a half. Um, but nothing changed because they were always off doing something else. Um, and I was just hanging out and smoking and drinking and waiting for everyone to, for the, to come together for the weekend. And it's hard to fathom that person that I was back then. Mm. So just without direction and drive. And I think that was a lot to do with the marijuana um, making me lazy and the drinking was making me lazy, but also that sense of, of not having a purpose. 
Right. And that was something that really wasn't addressed when I went to school. Which is a really important point. You look at the school system back then in Australia, but if you look also at the current school system in the US or even in Europe, um, I think there's a lot amiss and I feel we're not giving kids the tools to truly tackle life. Yeah. In your mind, what is something that you feel should absolutely be taught and be part of a school curriculum in order to prepare us for life? I, I wish I was taught, I can only go off what I felt, um, what I feel would have been handy now or you know early i'm like 42 now so <laughs> but still even learning how to do your taxes like i have no idea about pythagorean's theory or biology of the mitochondria um i probably should uh but i would use the knowledge of how to do my taxes so much more than anything else is the one thing that I hate every year is my taxes coming up and not understanding it and having to really annoy my, my accountant. Um, so just these life things, but also I didn't fathom just how many jobs and occupations and vocations are out there in the world that you can embrace just by doing something that you love. There, there's literally millions of jobs that you can make great money at that I didn't know about. I just thought, okay, you had to be a tradesman like a carpenter or a right. baker, or you've got to be really smart and be a lawyer or a doctor. And there's this whole realm of occupations that I had no idea about. I didn't know you could be uh, a TV host on Discovery Channel mm -hmm. um, or a cameraman and get paid to travel the world and have adventures. So really looking at what these children are truly interested in and embracing that and surrounding them in the things that, that they truly love to do um, while giving them a, a broad knowledge at the same time. I right. think that's going to harness the skills, the natural skills and abilities of these children as they grow older. Absolutely. Instead of putting them in a box, uh, which actually doesn't even fit the times anymore because so many of the jobs we know now are going to fall to the wayside. You look yeah. at the rise of AI and robotics. That's a whole nother topic. But speaking about boxes, you completely got out of your box. So there you are. You're basically homeless, but you have these nice girls who took you in. And you're also kind of seeking. You're aimless. You don't have a purpose. And it's kind of a time where you react to the world instead of acting from the inside yeah, out. Constantly reacting to mm -hmm. it, yeah. which in which you have no control over that. Uh, and so I, I moved out of living with the girls. I'd got a job at the lofty heights of kitchen hand, washing mm -hmm. dishes and uh, another one working behind a bar in a, um, a nightclub owned by an outlaw motorcycle gang. A club, right? Uh, no, that came, that came Later. after. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that was still, still uh -huh. in Canberra working yeah. at a, a nightclub run by mm -hmm. the bikey gangs and being forced to do cocaine on the bar. Um, you know, I'm talking 2B pencil size. And I, I said to him, like, he's a friend of mine, sort of. And I said, I, I can't do that. I'll die. And he said, you'll die if you don't do it. And that, that was the sort That of, was a promise, right? Yeah, that yeah. was the element mm -hmm. that I was surrounding yeah. myself in. And yeah. so uh, eventually I went to a farewell for a friend of mine who was being kicked out of the country uh, for criminal activity. And I got jumped and beat up really badly by about 20 dudes. You had a hell of a time there. And I think what you were just talking about is also what caused you to move out of that particular environment. Yeah, I, I had to remove myself from the environment that I become a product of that I, I had created this reality for myself. Mm -hmm. And 
after getting jumped and really beaten up and having these dudes driving past my house that I was living at looking for me and stuff, it drove home that I just couldn't do it anymore. I was going to be dead or in jail by the time I was 23. And even though I didn't do well in school, I knew that there was this amazing world out there. I, I was constantly reading books. I loved escaping my reality mm. through reading books and stories and adventures and watching documentaries about um, adventurers, uh, Ron and Valerie Taylor um, braving the oceans and the great white sharks and um, Australian adventurers, Albie Mangles and the Leyland brothers and Steve Irwin uh, to a later time. So I knew about this world. I knew there was there was this incredible place to go out and see and, and experience life but I was stuck in Canberra and I didn't know how to make that transition and so I did the only thing I think could do I left I threw everything into a car I had no license for and I moved up to Brisbane where my, my friend Matt was living mm-hmm. and he had a job waiting for me behind the bar in the strip club <laughs> uh, and so it changed slightly uh, there wasn't as much hardcore drugs going on there was a lot of marijuana though because i ended up moving in with some guys involved in hip-hop and so you know conducive to the hip-hop lifestyle is right living the snoop dog lifestyle of smoking weed and uh i didn't really enjoy it i just kind of did it because everyone else was doing it it was there uh, it just kind of makes me paranoid i don't really feel in control when, when i'm stoned so i don't really partake um but back then i was just like we were discussing i was just part of searching. what you did yeah yeah, yeah i was so- reacting to the world yep um, and so you changed your environment but what didn't change was yourself you basically yeah. took yourself in the same state that you were in <laughs> i took the problem up there to canberra <laughs> so here we are in the midst of this mayhem that is your life at this time right and yeah. that was a phase from let's say 16 to 23 in and canberra the- was uh 16 to 21 right. i arrived in brisbane on my 21st birthday and brisbane's 12 hours north of sydney um so i arrived in brisbane on my 21st birthday um and got involved in all of that stuff in the music industry put out a hip-hop cd opened for snoop dogg thought this was it i found my purpose and i don't i don't think it's a bad thing to just leave home and go not and all. try again even if you are taking the problem with you at least that problem is is learning more about the world and is giving you more experiences and without that period again and the struggles that i went through there perhaps i wouldn't have had the resilience later in life to overcome some of the other things so absolutely i I don't i like i wouldn't want to go back to those teenage years but i am now grateful for them because they felt like training for everything that was to come and you need to know what you don't want in order to be able to hold on for what you really want when yeah. you actually encounter it in life. Yeah. And so that that was up till 23. And then you and went then the to the And then the band broke up. <laughs> the band <laughs> broke up. I had no money. I was living in a house with no electricity, no running water, showering at the local pool. And I just thought, I can't do this anymore. It's like I've, I've tried everything. I've left home. I recreated myself. And I'm even worse off than I was before. Uh, I ended up working behind another bar in a restaurant just thinking, is this my life? This is, this is as good as it's going to get for Paul. And I just thought, I can't do it. No way. And so I sought guidance from the one person that will always be there, mum. Yes. And she, my, my two younger brothers were in the army at that stage. She said, talk to your brothers. They, they're in the army and they love it. So I did. Um, and they, they basically laid down the challenge. They said, it's great. You get paid to travel, paid to 
hang out with your mates, pay to blow stuff up because they were in artillery. Outstanding. All right. <laughs> and so that sound that perked my interest just to begin with. And then they're like, but don't join infantry. It's too hard. You won't make it. So I joined infantry. Defiance or did it just pique your curiosity? Oh, I couldn't have my baby brothers telling me what I can and can't do. So, and I just kind of felt like if you're going to be a soldier, you'd be a soldier. I didn't really, I didn't really understand the army at that point. <laughs> I knew there were soldiers and I knew there was artillery because my brother was it. And that was, that was all I really understood. So I joined infantry. I wanted to be the guy getting dirty with the machine gun, shooting rocket launchers. You know, when you see the movies, that's, you know, that's the star of the movie. I wanted to be that guy. And you were, but you also had a phase where you completely switched that up and you actually became a paratrooper. Well, that was what I did. Um, so when you when you join the army, you go through basic mm -hmm. training, what they call boot camp here. And then uh, I joined the infantry. So I went to infantry training school. And then you decide, we get a partial decision as to where you would like to go within the army infantry. Um, so there was the commandos, there was the airborne, there was a couple of motorized and mechanized where they ride around in trucks or um, or tanks and things like that. So it just basically came to the end of infantry school and the boss was like, okay, so who here wants to jump out of a plane? And so my dumb ass put my hand up in the air um, and that was it. He's like, yeah, all right, mate, you're off, to infantry, you're off to airborne school. So became a airborne soldier and loved it. You Changed everything about my, my perspective on the world. And you, what you just said, you loved it. I think that was also a big part of you went to the army. It was the complete opposite of the life you had before. You <laughs> yeah. went from chaos to structure and obedience. Absolutely. And you immediately took to it or did it take a while? How it did you took, cope with that change? It took a little while. Um, by the time I got to infantry school, it was okay. I'd spent 10 weeks at boot camp. And that was really, really hard adjusting to the most disciplined, crazy people on the planet. But it was so regimented that it got me ready for uh, infantry school. And because there was no smoking or anything like that, um, my, my fitness from all the years of swimming from basically three years old to 15 years old came back. And I could outrun everyone. I could outswim everyone. I could out um, obstacle course everyone. I could out pack march everyone. And so I found this element that all of these skills I didn't know I could use came to the fore and made me a really great soldier. And so I, I just utilized that continuously because I was definitely not the smartest person. I, my t retention of knowledge is quite poor. Uh, I don't know why that is. Um, I do know that I have sleep apnea now and I was tired. A I would fall asleep at the drop of a hat. And I feel like that partially had something to do with it because I was always tired. I was always cranky and I just couldn't focus and concentrate. And I think that was probably part of why I didn't do so well in school as well. So um, to anyone listening to, if you have children or if you are cranky all the time or you snore or you fall asleep, go and have a sleep study. Don't be so brave or proud that you think you can manage it because the, the most fundamental um, thing that we can do to help us get through our day is get a good night's sleep. Absolutely. Go get the sleep study, find out what's wrong. Um, I didn't want to go full Darth Vader with the big sleep mask. So I sleep with a, a little mouth guard. It's mm -hmm. like a retainer. Uh, it changed everything for me. All of a sudden I'm not cranky. I'm not falling asleep. I've got more energy. And all I had to do was wear a mouthpiece. Um, Excellent. People underestimate that, you know, sleep is really one of the 
biggest pillars of our health, of our oh, body, so our much. mind functioning. Yeah. You I would mean, know, like you're into oh, tapping the human body. And, absolutely. Hell yeah. yes. You don't sleep correctly. What happens to your hormones, to your immune system, to the way you can focus or not, it's it's, it's mind-blowing. So, yes, you need to get on top of that yeah. if you have sleep problems, and it's underestimated. Or if you, you find it, think your kids might have it as well. Yeah, like absolutely. If they're having trouble concentrating, not everyone is on the spectrum with autism or has ADHD or anything like that. Sometimes they're just not getting enough sleep. And we're going to get into the biohacking a little later. I know you're also into the biohacking, um, but right now I'd like to know from you, because we're at this topic, what are your top hacks for sleep. What do you know now that you didn't know back then when you were a kid and in the military? Um, definitely, I don't um, drink caffeine for at least minimum six hours before bed. And I don't care who you are, you think you can manage it or whatever. Oh, caffeine. I hear a lot of my friends say caffeine doesn't affect me. It does. We all regulate these hormones and, and uh, chemicals the same way. And caffeine has a half life of six hours. So, um, whether you think you are or not, you're like, you are having disrupted sleep. So no caffeine, no alcohol for a couple of, it doesn't always work when I'm hanging out with Raph over here, uh, <laughs> but at minimal alcohol hours before bed. Um, I generally don't even eat for a couple of hours before bed. Um, if I do, I wake up with a kind of upset stomach, which has made my sleep uh, not great as well. Um, no phone. Uh, if I do, if I feel like I need to work almost up until bedtime, I put it onto night mode. So you take out that blue light that keeps your brain active, uh, gives you more of a red hue. And one of the simplest things is wear yourself out. You know, when you're a kid, you are running and you, you are do it moving. naturally. Yeah, right. you're active. And, you, and we become so sedentary because in our, you know, the majority of people's lives and jobs, you're sitting and you're working from a desk in a computer and by the time you get home you're just you're kind of exhausted from sitting behind a computer so what do you do you sit on the couch and watch netflix yeah, right. yeah exactly so we need to our bodies are not designed for all of this sitting we need to be moving and rolling and um playing games and that that's how i see working out i don't see it as a chore i don't see it as a job i don't see it as working out it is me this is me playing yes i go in the gym it's to have living. fun yeah like, and people, oh, I get bored of lifting weights. Fine, find something else to do. That's find a sport, go for a run on the beach, the beautiful view when do the sun's going down. Do a hundred jumping jacks, whatever, Anything. if you're lazy. Just, yeah, just move, find yeah. a group. It's so much easier to do it in a group. Mm -hmm. And it's not just uh, calisthenics now and aerobics. You've got CrossFit. If you don't want to do CrossFit, um, go and do yoga or Pilates or you've got animal movement um, camps or adult gymnastics. Go and learn to do uh, a somersault for the first time in your life. Yeah, and okay. community is vastly important. You have people who keep you accountable, who cheer you on, and keep who you young, keep you young, and kick you in the behind when exactly. you're like, "I can't do this." Yeah, that we yeah. cannot forget to have fun. And how do we have fun? We play, and this is how we play as adults. Absolutely. And going back to your time as a soldier, when you still had all these problems, now you've elevated yourself, you've hacked yourself to, I mean, stellar physicality and mental focus. But back then, you were still seeking challenges of another kind. Yeah, well, I was very grateful to the army because it gave me purpose. And that's like- You felt that was true purpose then? It, it, it was a purpose. A purpose. Yeah, mm -hmm. I didn't know if this was me for the rest of my life. I had, I always felt, that there was something better. There was always going to be something better around the corner for me. I didn't know when or where or what it was going to be, but I knew that I, I 
felt like I was going to do something special, special for me. You know, I didn't know it was going to be special for anyone else, but it would make me feel special. And it was, it was purposeful. The army was a stepping stone to that. You have had this, uh, let's call it a pattern or a theme throughout your life. And what you just said, you know, you were always looking for this purpose. You've always been so open for completely new experiences, things mm. you've never tried before, which is the polar opposite of how most people operate. Most people like to stick to what they know. You just threw yourself right in there. And you did so again when you switched services from the mm. army to the Navy yeah. in order to become a clearance diver. And am I correct? Uh, is it correct that you actually had never even taken a dive? I never dived in my life. And there you go. Yeah. I want to be a clearance diver. <laughs> Within two weeks, I'm searching the hulls of ships for bombs. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, I, I've learned over the years that these big nerve wracking, scary decisions and challenges, if they are presenting themselves to you in your world, there is a reason for that and you need to embrace it. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't always work out 100% of the time, but at least you know, you know, at least you know you've tried and you've been there and who knows, sometimes it actually freaking works yes. and you pull something out of your butt that you never thought you could achieve and that's what happened when I became a clearance diver, went and on selection course yeah. and just killed it. And you exerted something that we call free will, because when you go for these things that are outside of your comfort zone, you're actually also rewiring your brain. Mm -hmm. Our brain, its main job is to keep us safe, to keep us alive. <laughs> so that's why most people don't want to try new things. New things are threatening, right? Let's not go there. We're alive right now. Let's not change anything about that. So you actually overcome this and you've done that naturally all of your life. And so taking on this challenge, becoming a clearance diver, can you explain to us a little bit more what that entails? What do you actually do there? We get trained. It's a very multifaceted role. Um, it takes after the selection course, which goes for 10 days, uh, kind of like the Navy SEAL selection where you're swimming in the middle of the night for uh, six hours. Just terrifying. Um, followed by a marathon and, you know, 10 days nonstop. Um, you go into nine months of training and that's just the basic clearance mm -hmm. divers course. This is where you learn to do maritime tactical operations. You learn, um, so that is learning how to operate and put together pure oxygen rebreathers and do attack swimming and reconnaissance swimming in day or nighttime, um, basically over long, like couple of hours at a time, not coming up at all and being able to swim a, a, a couple of miles and come up on maybe a, a one single pylon on a wharf and conduct reconnaissance. So that's one role. Then there's mine countermeasures where we find mines and seaborne explosives and we get rid of those or we pull them back into shore and we disassemble them and gain the, um, the knowledge of the technology that's being used. Um, then there's underwater battle damage repair, which is using handheld tools underwater, such as um, underwater welding, cutting guns, um, chainsaws, all that sort of stuff that's using the modern day diving helmets. Also there's EOD, so explosive ordnance disposal. Um, and what am I missing? MTM, M MTO, MCM, <laughs> EOD, UBDR, and you can also go and uh, become basically the military's version of a SWAT team, which right. is called uh, the Tactical Assault Group. So, so most of the last um, acronyms you said don't 
say anything to me, I'll be Googling all of yeah. them. But what I know for sure is that you were basically the guys that everybody else looked up to or was really, really scared of. It's we were one of them, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was the clearance divers, the SAS and the commandos. Right. Um, and the I most thought elite about, units. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The SAS and the commandos are run by Special Operations Command, but they're kind of like an army element, very soldierly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought about doing that as well, but after five years in the infantry, I was just sick of being dirty and smelly and hot. And so I thought I'm just going to go <laughs> from falling out of a plane to diving in the ocean and try something completely out of context. Yeah. And I loved it. I, lo- I loved being with the boys. I loved being, you know, in the, as, in the, as a grunt, you get kind of coddled a bit, like you're very disciplined and you, they don't let you off a very short leash. Whereas as a clearance diver, everyone's a leader, everyone's trusted. Mm-hmm. So you, you get treated like an adult. You don't call the... the the officers, sir, you call them boss or you call them mate or you call them by their first name or their nickname. It's Completely just different culture. Totally different culture. And I loved that. I love being um, given the trust to do this very dangerous job. And, and that made me want to do it even better. You were one amongst equals in a sense. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, this is not a conversation about a shark attack. However, that was a pivotal part of your life yeah changed everything superhumanize it was february 2011 2009 february 11th 2009 february 11th 2009 very close yes but take us back to that day and in your own words recap what happened february is the end of summer in australia so it's usually very very hot and we had to be at work that day at 4 30 um, so I, I rode my big black sexy uh, Italian motorcycle to work and then met up with the boys. No one else was there except for our little team. Um, there was me, Dadi, Lockie, Tomo and my chief Pato. Australian um, nicknames always end in like Y's and O's. <laughs> um, you were Dutchy at the time. Yeah, I, was, mm-hmm. I, no, I was DG at the time. I was mm-hmm. Dutchy in the army, mm-hmm. DG in Australia uh, for Degelder, but it's an acronym for Dangerous Goods. Um, so we jumped in our little inflatable boat and transited from the dive teams across Sydney Harbour to the big Navy base um, that's called HMAS Cuttable or Garden Island. It's where all the warships are berthed, our very, very little warships compared to American ones. And uh, we had a, a job to test unmanned video and sonar equipment. So the R&D department had set up this system on the wharf that would track would detect and track uh an attack swimmer or diver so the video would be motion detected it would track something moving on the surface and the sonar would detect under the water and so there was going to be a three-pronged testing whereby we'd swim then we'd scuba dive and then we'd do rebreathers with no bubbles um so we were on the, the first phase I had my new guy in the water to start with, Lockie, and he's just swimming up and back. It was really easy, just basically swimming from point A to point B, which was the bow of a warship. Um, And he was in the water for about 30 minutes, and I just thought, well, I'm in my wetsuit. I'm getting hot. This is boring. I'll give him a break. And I pulled him out, and I slid over the the edge of the inflatable in a black wetsuit and a pair of black fins, And I was doing what we call finning, where we lay on our back on the surface, kicking our legs. And this is how we move around when we're on the surface of the water, whether we've got dive sets on or not. And so I was just doing that. I was in the water for about four minutes. I think I'd I'd done one run and then I was coming back for my second. And 
I looked over my left shoulder just to make sure I was going in the right direction and I got a massive whack in my leg and it didn't really hurt uh, and I, I wasn't sure what it was. I just kind of thought maybe what, why are the guys in the boat so close to me? And I turned around and came face to face with a massive shark's head that was attached to me, but I didn't realize the extent of it because I'd never seen a shark that big before. You know, it's very hard for your brain to perceive something that it's, it's never seen before. And so it felt like it took a second for me to work out what was going on. And then I realized it was a shark. Instantly I'm thinking, Shark Week, Crocodile Hunter, Steve Irwin, jab it in the eyeball. So I tried that, but I tried to move my arm and I couldn't. And I looked down and the teeth were embedded into my wrist. And I could see every time I pulled it, that the skin was tearing a little bit more. And it still didn't truly hurt at that point because I think the adrenaline had kicked in. And so I thought, okay, um, go, for the, go for the eyeball with the left hand. And so I reached over, but I couldn't reach the eyeball with my finger. And so I tried, I grabbed it by the nose, which was right in front of me. Like, so this thing's got me by the top of my leg. And so I grabbed the nose and I tried to push it off, but that it just didn't work. I had no leverage. The, the bottom teeth of the jaw uh, under, at the bottom of my leg pushed in further. And so I tried to punch it in the head, like my last ditch effort. And when I was winding up to hit it, it must have realized maybe by the blood leaking out of my leg that I was food. And so it started to shake me. And so I didn't actually get to land that punch and the agony of that animal tearing the flesh out of my body just wiped all the strength out of me. And there was, I felt absolutely powerless. It took me underwater for a, a second and I popped back up and took a big gasp of air and then it took me back down and I didn't come up again for six to seven seconds and it was just thrashing me the whole time like a, a rottweiler with a ragdoll and i realized just there was nothing i could do and i thought to myself i'm not going home today i'm going to die right now and a question popped into my head and all of this this video is on youtube um you, you guys probably play it it, it lasts eight seconds it's Split that, seconds. It's I've seen it. Quick. Yes. But I can break it down. And because over the years I've had the opportunity to talk about it on stage, um, every, a, a lot of the times something new will come to me ab about what happened. And talking to the guys that were in the boat as well always explains something new to me or, or another angle. And so I break it down very slowly. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm not going home today. I'm going to die. Am I ready to die? And I thought back and I thought, well, geez, I'm 31. I've lived 10 lives in these 31 years. I've done so much more than I could have imagined that little picked on kid back in Canberra could have achieved when I was mm -hmm. cutting my arms up. I'm so glad that I, I persevered through everything that happened. And I got to this point where I've achieved so much. I'm going to die and I have no regrets. And so I accepted the fact a calm came over me and I was ready to go. And then the shark ripped out my hamstring. Its teeth had sawn through and met in the middle, ripped out the muscle, ripped off my hand. And because it wasn't attached to me anymore and holding me underwater, my wetsuit being buoyant brought me to the surface. And I popped out the, the tail of the shark splashed water in my face and kind of shocked me into realizing, oh shit, I'm not dead. And so I thought, I've got to get out of here. I spotted my safety boat and I started to swim, but my hand was gone. 
And so my medical training kicked in. I didn't even really like, I, I think I, I yelled when I saw it. I was probably swore being Australian. Um, but instantly thinking, I've got to keep that wound above my heart to stem the bleeding, not realizing how bad my leg was. And so I'm swimming back to the boat with my hand out of the water through a pool of my own blood. And the guys at that stage had seen what was going on and, and gunned it over towards me to try and rescue me. Uh, I didn't think I was going to make it. I thought this shark, I had a picture in my mind of bull sharks swimming in packs or schools. And then another one was going to grab Circle me back. from all the thrashing and I was just going to die. So I had no expectation of living through that. But what else was I going to do? I just kept swimming. Like they say in Nemo, you just keep swimming. And luckily the guys in the boat got to me first, grabbed me. And they said that when they grabbed me, it looked like my body was cut in half because my leg was just sticking out of the water, but my body was facing downwards. In a moment like that, are there any coherent thoughts that go through your head or are you operating purely on instinct? What? It was laser-like focus. And I think it was something that the military had had drilled into me quite well was if you have a task to complete laser-like focus on that task until it's done and so my only mission at that point was get to the boat so that's all i had to worry about um put the sharks to the back of my mind i'm probably going to die just get to the boat just and then you the got to the boat and the, the boat, team worked as it was supposed to work pull, pulled me out of the water and i was just wrapped that i wasn't going to get eaten again because i didn't want to go through that pain and so i relaxed my blood pressure instantly dropped and i passed out uh, my buddy thought i was going into cardiac arrest so he started pummeling me in the chest woke me back up i'm not sure if it was because my heart was stimulated or the fact that he was punching me in the chest <laughs> but i woke up and um i didn't pass out again after that um because i felt like if i closed my eyes then i was going to die so then my mission was don't close your eyes stay, stay awake stay alive the guys in the boat put a tourniquet on my leg with a strap from a life jacket. The other guy drove the boat to the pier and Tomo was over the top of me just talking to me constantly. And I just, I, I tried to talk back. I cracked a joke and said, mate, can you make sure someone looks after my motorbike? And he just laughed at me. <laughs> but it was just, keep your eyes open. Look at Tomo, listen to his voice, keep breathing. Don't die, don't die, don't die. And so that was the mantra they got me up to the the wharf um there was a whole another scenario where they couldn't get me to the wharf up the wharf because it was 10 feet above the water and they had to build this whole um system with logs and wood to get me up there and then um my chief took control because he was um very highly trained um he located an artery in my leg that was still um, pumping out blood the tourniquet hadn't stopped it so he had to get one of the guys to pinch close that with his fingers um and they called the paramedics and just kept me conscious and awake until the paramedics got there. By the time they got there, I was in agony. I was screaming for drugs. The adrenaline had worn off. The pain in my leg was just immense. I was screaming for them to give me drugs. Um, and they did, they pumped me full of drugs and the pain didn't go away. I have a very um, high pain threshold, but I also have a very high drug threshold. <laughs> So I'm in that ambulance screaming for more drugs. And they're like, Paul, we can't give you any more. We've given you too much already. Your blood pressure's dropping. And then I started to have respiratory problems. And I nearly suffocated in the ambulance because of the lack of blood, the lack of oxygen, the drugs in my system. And I physically could not make my chest go up and down. And so they coached me through that almost like a Lamar's class, like I'm a pregnant lady in the ambulance, like huffing and puffing and like tiny little breaths, just and then when I had enough energy, suck one in, 
that and that kept me alive to the to the hospital. And then they started operating on you directly? Yeah, I went straight into the emergency surgery. The doctor came up and he was like, Paul, I've got you. We got we got you in theater. We're going to look after you. You're going to be fine. I said, Doc, just if you save my leg, I've got a case of beer with your name on it. And he's like, I don't know what was going through in my mind. I was <laughs> like, look after my motorbike and I'll buy a case of beer if you save my leg. They eventually did have to take the leg off though, right? Because yeah. you would have not been able to use it. Yeah. And there was a point um, that you speak about in your book where you went through so much pain that you only wanted to die. Yeah. And how do you cope with this when literally within split seconds, your entire life, what you think constitutes your personality, who you are, gets ripped from you? How do you cope with that? How do you dig yourself back? into life it's a really really hard scenario to work through i'm not really sure why my my brain operated the way that it did so resiliently that that period you were talking about with the pain that was um a week after the attack and the day after they took off my leg and all i could do was roll from side to side in my hospital bed crying i was in so much agony for 20 hours like one hour two hour three hours to 20 hours of just crying and praying to die and wishing that the shark would kill me. I asked my mom to find me a gun so I could kill myself. And then eventually it just faded away. And so I was laying in my hospital bed with nothing but time. I had, I had so I thought, I thought, what am I going to do? You know, I, I've created this incredible life that I love and I fought so hard for that life am I willing to let it go no matter the circumstances that I'm going through? And I just decided that I wasn't in a very, very complicated situation. I had a very simple choice to make. Do I want a good life or do I want a bad life? No, this is a choice we all get to make every mm -hmm. single day in every single circumstances, no matter how good or bad it is, what do you want? And then Obviously, everyone's going to choose a good life. Okay, so what's the next mission? How do I achieve that good life? What is the first baby step that I can make on that path to a good life? And so for me, it was PT. It was physically challenging myself and trying to regain um, some sense of being able to use this new body. And so- You started training in your bed. You're basically yeah. the nightmare of the doctors <laughs> yeah, at the hospital, right? Yeah, it was right? absolutely a nightmare for everyone. The nurses hated it. The surgeons were fretting because I was mm -hmm. going to blow out all my stitches. But physically, because of the drugs, I was okay. I just needed to make sure that my, my mentality, my emotional state was going to be okay as well. And the only way I could do that is by taking that first step to recovery. And it would have been much easier to just lay there and watch the telly. And I did that a lot. I laid there and watched the TV, passed the time, escaped into books once again. But What did you read at the time? I read um, Paul Coelho, The Alchemist. Right. Um, I was reading The Peaceful Warrior. And it wasn't all uplifting stuff. Some of it was just to escape my reality because I was terrified. I was, I was so scared all of that time it, this was me training was not me being a big tough navy clearance diver that was me being motivated through fear of losing my whole identity yes. and fear can do that you can you can be scared and have fear and be terrified and let that take you over or you can use that to spur you into action and propel you towards 
the outcome that's that you're scared of of being embraced by like why would you let fear take over and drag you down into depression and sadness and a horrible life when you can use that fear to make you stronger you've done something on such a fundamental level that most people don't even get to experience in their lifetime which is to face yourself in the rawest state and learn what you're actually made of. And this fear that you're talking about, was there a point for you when you actually broke through it? And is is there a point beyond where fear doesn't exist anymore? Uh, yeah, that absolutely is. Um, and, and, and I don't mean to say all this stuff about using fear as a, as a motivator and stuff like I knew what I was doing. I, I didn't um, know this uh, as a cognizant action until much later when I was getting on stage and I was talking about it and people were asking me questions about it and I had to actually think to myself and then explain it. At that time, I was almost on automatic pilot. Mm -hmm. I, had ju I just knew what I needed to achieve and so that's how I did it. And to be honest, in uh, answer to your question, there was nothing left to be afraid of. I literally faced my worst fear the only thing i was more afraid of than sharks was public speaking um, and now and, you do it all the time yeah well i embrace that much later yes. but you know that was terrifying in itself um and so it got to the point where the only fear i had was not living a good life i had visions of never being attractive to the opposite sex never having a girlfriend never getting married never having someone that would look at me like I was a full person, a whole person, someone attractive. And so that always played in the back of my mind. And there was nothing you could do about that. You can't train that out of yourself. Um, and feeling like you're half the person you were before. And I, I can't, I couldn't run. I couldn't walk fast. I, you know, I had to, I was mostly hopping at that stage anyway, but I was hopping around the hospital ward. And that was me taking action to try and progress and you progress so much you actually got yourself back into the navy yeah your time of recuperating your body and mind was actually compressed it was very very short compared to uh, how other people go yeah. through this kind of a situation what did you end up doing at the navy um i was i was instructing mm -hmm. um and for some people they they do they do get back quite quickly, but the complexity of my surgery, it wasn't a normal amputation where the lower limb was um, damaged and they just lopped it off and it has to heal up and then you go back and do whatever. Um, I had all of the bones removed from the lower part of my leg. I had to have the knee joint taken out, the end of my femur sawn off, and then I had to have the calf muscle folded into the back of my hamstring where the, the shark bite was. So. It, it was much more complex and painful and um, uh, it, much more to deal with than just a normal amputation. And then I had the hand missing as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I struggled a lot. I had three further surgeries after that to remove bone spurs from my leg, um, one to remove um, a bursa on the end of my arm. But that goal, that impossible goal of getting back to work was everything to me mm -hmm. and so i pushed past every boundary that i had the doctors were trying to hold me back they were trying to tell me they were, they were giving me four weeks of recovery time after a certain surgery and i'd be like all right i'm going to cut it down to two and i'd go into the gym and i train and i train and i train and i'd hop around the house and i i, I at a lot of the time 
I wouldn't go outside because people would stare at me and I felt embarrassed, to be honest. I was self-conscious. What were you embarrassed about, though? I was embarrassed of the person that I had become after how powerful and strong and capable I was before that. The human mind doesn't always work the I way know. that you would expect. And it's also something I think, you know, no matter whether we're religious or not, we're often really deeply steeped in this axiom, you know, humans as the crown of creation and then having something happen to you and on such a terrifying visceral level as in there's creatures out there they can literally eat you and kill yeah. you that really shakes one to the core profoundly yeah and so i took that a bit a bit of as a personal challenge and just went straight back into the ocean after three months <laughs> as soon as my stitches and staples were out i had my eight foot board on my arm going into the ocean and i was embarrassed and i was i felt the the sorrow and the pity from people but I, I couldn't control that. And so all I did was I just put my head down uh, and I just hopped down to the ocean and got in. And I, I nearly drowned half a dozen times trying to get out the back of the waves. But eventually I got out there and I was sitting with my mates with my blood pumping in the sun at beautiful Bondi Beach in the ocean. And it was the first time in months that I felt alive and happy. And that only happened because I... I decided to go against my fears and my embarrassment and try and live again. And I remember that feeling all the time when I want to sit on my bum and eat a whole box of, I don't know, vegan ice creams and <laughs> actually you know, waffle stacks and all of that. And I see my running blade and I know it's going to hurt, but I also know how good it makes me feel to achieve something. And so I get off, off up my ass and I go and live. And I, I tell you what, I've never, ever once regretted getting up off my ass and going outside to live. Superhumanize. This part of your life that we've been talking about now obviously is fascinating for many reasons, but I think what you're doing now is even more fascinating. In about, I think it was a year or two after you rejoined the army as an instructor. Navy as an instructor. Yes, yeah. the Navy as an instructor. You again opened another completely new chapter of your life. You well, left the Navy? Well, previous to leaving, I embraced that other fear, the speaking. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do it because I was terrified. And companies had asked me to speak. And I said no, because I like, I didn't see the benefit of it. And then I didn't realize how much money you can make speaking for starters. <laughs> and I just, I didn't want to, I, I wasn't interested. I just wanted to live my life. I just wanted to have my job. But then Canteen, a cancer camp for kids, asked me to speak at one of their summer camps. And I just thought, oh, God, how do you say no to kids with yeah. cancer? Thinking, I'm going to have to speak. Yeah. This is terrifying. And I felt so <laughs> stupid walking into that room, terrified of these 20 children. But I walked out of there afterwards on top of the world, just feeling so good for what I'd just done to help those kids forget that they were sick for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I thought I can do this again. And it developed, I went from there to 1200 kids at my old school in Canberra. And then I took a couple of very low paying jobs. And after three years in the Navy as an instructor and, and doing a handful of speaking jobs, I hit a crossroads whereby I wasn't going to get promoted. I wasn't going to get sent back to the diving teams. My whole career as a diver would be spent at the diving school teaching people to do something I love without ever getting to do it myself. Mm -hmm. 
or I could go and speak, but I couldn't do both because the Navy made me use all of my annual leave and I'd run out. So at that stage, I was making my two weeks Navy wage in one hour or I could work 70 or 80 hour weeks killing myself. And I was mm -hmm. killing myself trying to keep up and make it look easy. So I decided once again, that big scary decision. Jump right in. Yep. And Venturing out into the big bad civilian world that I'd already failed at <laughs> with still no real world skills. No, no one's going to let me play with bombs. I look like I'm terrible at it. So mm -hmm. it was okay. And I, and I was scared also because who wants to be living off old glories from 10, 20 years ago? Uh, do I want to be that guy telling the same old story? I got attacked by a shark back in 2009. <laughs> I didn't want to be that guy, but I knew I needed to do something. And so I just, like you said, I jumped in head first. And you also jumped in not only into the speaking, but you jumped into something kind of like the polar opposite of what happened to you for lack of better words. So from being attacked to a shark, you became one of the biggest advocates for shark conservation. Um, they say that the opposite of love is not hate, but it's fear. Mm. When did your fear of sharks turn to love? That took some time. It started with respect. It started with understanding. Because my shark attack was so widely publicized all mm -hmm. around the world, and especially Australia, because it was the first attack in Sydney Harbour in 60 years, mm -hmm. the first clearance diver ever attacked, the media came to me for comments every time there was another shark interaction. And Call so, Paul. sorry? Call Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I became that guy. Because I'd been on TV a couple of times, I was on 60 Minutes a couple of times, mm -hmm. and so... They knew that I was, I guess, well-spoken. Um, and so out of necessity of not just giving an opinion, I wanted to give an informed, educated opinion so that I could actually make sense and help people and sharks. I learned and knowledge dispels fear. So my fear didn't turn to hate, it turned to uh, understanding. I understarted to understand the shark's plight. How many, like the 100 million a year killed for Chinese medicine, for status, for a food that's not even good for you. Or for even bycatch of yeah, regular bycatch, fishing, right? Bycatch, yeah, and thrown back dead. Yes. For all of these reasons that were absolutely needless, these animals mm -hmm. are suffering and dying. And so my military service, the whole reason for the military service transferred from helping people, helping people that may not be able to stand up for themselves that didn't have a voice to helping this animal mm -hmm. that couldn't stand up for itself and didn't have a voice. And what a lot of people don't understand is where animals suffer, humans suffer too. For people who are not aware of these facts, um, give them a rundown on what happens when you diminish or even completely remove sharks out of an ecosystem. Yeah, this has been documented uh, quite a few times uh, around the world in different places. Um, so sharks... Uh, one of their main roles is to consume the, the weaker species, just like they do, the lions do in the herds of Africa, keeping the, the herd strong right. by, by taking out the sick, the old, the injured. Um, but what they also do is the sharks keep the fish stocks uh, in, at a manageable level. For instance, if there were no sharks, the carnivorous fish would um, overpopulate the reef they would eat all of the fish that eat the algae off of the reef. The algae would basically suffocate that reef and every fish in that ecosystem would die, as would the reef. 
There was an instance in Queensland where the fishermen were getting annoyed with the tiger sharks, so they keep eating the fish, mm-hmm. so they started killing the tiger sharks. All of a sudden, there was no sharks to eat the turtles. The turtle population exploded. They ate all of the seagrass and the manatees starved. And then there's another one where the sharks were all wiped out of a fishing village. And this is this is how it ripples down onto humans as well in ways mm-hmm. that we can't mm-hmm. fathom. So the sharks were wiped out. There was no sharks to eat the rays. The rays were eating the scallops. And because the population exploded, ate it, all, all the scallops and the bivalves, the scalloping industry collapsed. People lost their boats, their homes, their jobs. Yes. So yes. this is how it ripples down onto us in untold ways. Yeah. Even if you're complete unempathetic person and don't care about these beautiful majestic animals it is going to come back to you in one form or another absolutely and we got to put this in perspective too i think it's really important you know uh, sharks have for so many years gotten a bad rap talk about fake news right but the real monsters of the sea is us oh absolutely you look at the extinction of marine life you know the extinction of species like sharks the dying coral reefs um there it's really horrific what's going on right now for people who are listening to this and who would like to get involved but don't know how how can an individual person do something oh this is a hard truth it's it's Mm -hmm. a bitter truth that no one wants to hear it's like that there's a meme going around at the moment Mm -hmm. people will stop using straws to save the fish but they won't stop eating fish to save the fish boom there we go exactly to all these pescatarians out there who say they love animals and love the environment they just have fish everyone's participating in the destruction of our planet um and it's not that any of us are better than anyone else right sometimes people um are ignorant of the facts they don't have the education some people are giving um false facts as in we need the omegas from fish we absolutely do not i've I'm thriving at life. I haven't eaten a piece of fish in three and a half years. Um, We can get all of these nutrients and much healthier nutrients from plant-based sources. And that is the fundamental basic way to save our oceans and save our planet is to stop consuming all of these animals. Um, Yes. Animal proteins are truly at the um, bottom of most of the big problems that afflict us nowadays. You look at the oceans dying, you look at social injustice, you look at the massive health problems we have globally. And uh, I truly believe if we can switch to a, if not completely plant-based diet, but mainly plant-based diet. I'll take anything I can get at this point. Uh, (laughs) Meatless Monday, do what you can, (laughs) just minimize it as much as you can. And honestly, it's it everyone thinks it's terrifying and it's hard and exactly. i was in that boat too i was I, too oh i understand God. i thought that you had to eat all of the chicken breasts in the oh, world Jesus. to get muscles i had meat I'm, birthday cakes i'm german born for christ's sake you know <laughs> <Meat birthday cakes. laughs> i'm only half kidding yeah i never actually got those muscles until yeah. i went plant-based actually um because my body was so inflamed from all of the the meat that i was eating i, I had constant injuries I haven't had a single injury since I went plant-based and I, I didn't, I didn't do it easy. I didn't, I failed. I tried going vegan after going to Africa, mm-hmm. um, and being influenced by an incredible man called Damien Manda, who started the international anti-poaching yes. foundation Amazing human being. and John Joseph lead singer of the Crow Mags, a very 
loud and boisterous vegan New York and God bless him. He wrote meters for pussies. Um, and it just kept coming up in my world. So I, I went home from Africa, decided I was going vegan and failed in two days. <laughs> so I understand how hard it is. What I worked out was you've got to replace, you've got to add foods before you take them yes. away. So And small steps. Yeah. yeah I, too. I, I was a big kangaroo eater back mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wiped out kangaroo. I, st- I stopped eating it. And then next came all red meat and then chicken. And this was over a period of months. And so I started adding more foods that I never ate. I started adding beans and legumes and sweet potato and cauliflower and broccoli and spinach. And I became, actually, I was a good cook. My best friend growing up was a cook. And I became a better cook because I had to learn how to make all of these different foods. And so... I don't want to spend all bloody day in the kitchen. I eat so much food. So I meal prep. I take mm-hmm. two, three hours out on a Sunday. I get all my stuff together. I put in some um, edamame pasta and cook up some quinoa and cook up some rice. And I'll do my sweet potatoes in the oven. And I'll, I'll just do it all together. I put it into separate containers. I've got 12 to 15 meals that will get me through the week. Put, put some in the freezer. Put some in the fridge. I do my oats in the morning. I got three of those meals during the day. And then dinner, maybe I'll cook. Maybe we'll go out. But it just it made it so easy. Mm-hmm. And it was cheap as hell. And I know you're also into, you know, biohacking. So do you actually keep um, an eye on your stats? Do you know what changed? I don't because uh, I don't have uh, American healthcare. Mm-hmm. So I can't go and get all those blood tests. Um, so I just base it off how I feel. And some t- I, I'm ha- honestly, I haven't been sick in probably two years. Um, Same. But I do mm-hmm. feel lower I feel at a lower ebb sometimes other than others. Um, So I I sit down and I think about it and I go back a a day or two or three or four and I think about what I've been doing and what I've, and oftentimes I'm Australian and I'm military and I love beer and I I love, I love margaritas. Um, And sometimes, and I love ice cream. I, for dinner the other night, you don't have to be crazy strict about this. Like, the other night, I had a double waffle ice cream sandwich with maple syrup, almond butter, and chocolate-coated yes. almonds for dinner. That's where the benefit of being an adult comes in. You can I eat whatever know. the hell that you want. That was my dinner. Yes. But the next day, I got up and I did a five-hour hike. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it evened itself out. But I love all that stuff. I mm-hmm. love being a junk food vegan as well. But the majority of my time is spent being healthy and, and whole plant-based foods. And, and plant-based and whole foods, yes. Yeah. I, I don't eat meat. I don't eat dairy. People make it more complicated than it needs to be. Same as training. They make it too complicated. People ask me, how do I get muscles? How do I get big? Mm-hmm. How do I get strong? Whatever. Lift lots of weights, eat lots of food. And I know the, from uh, our mutual friend, Raphael, that you actually do crazy things at the gym. You have people come stop <laughs> there all the time, looking at you, jaw dropping. Well, and- I don't think they're crazy. I just think they're normal. <laughs> but I, yeah. I do, yeah. I and do. then they get even more flummoxed when they learn you're plant-based. Yeah, They just absolutely. can't believe that. I'm a firm believer in leading by example and, um, you know, do as I do, not as I say. I learned that in being an instructor in the Navy mm-hmm. because I never expected my trainees to do something that I wasn't willing to do, even without my limbs. If we're there till two in the morning doing 1,500 push-ups, then I'm there doing them with them as well. And so that's how I try and live every day. And I try and walk into the gym every time and set the example that others can follow. So if I get in there and people are looking at me, like, like I travel a lot, so I go into mm-hmm. a lot of gyms and people will go, oh, okay, look 
at this guy, you know, he's missing limbs. And so I'll jump up and I'll do 30 chin-ups. And that will set the standard by which um, my workout will go. And they'll be like, okay, now I need to train harder. And so uh, I don't do it to show off or any bullshit like that. I just do it because I know from people coming and talking to me that me working out inspires people and motivates people to train harder and better. And so it's a double positive. I win, they win. Yes. And this is also something else. You always have cared very much about the well-being of other people. I mean, it shows in things like, you know, you touch upon very terrifying things and you try to make people laugh and you succeed most of the <laughs> time. Uh, you really care for others and you are a protector. I mean, that runs through your yeah. career as a soldier. It runs through your activism for sharks, um, your work with children as a motivational speaker, and also now being a plant-based advocate. And yeah. it's you're such an amazing role model for you're redefining masculinity. You're showing that being tough and strong and also being compassionate is not mutually exclusive. The tough guys are the people that protect. They're not the ones yes, that harm. Who's, exactly. who's, who are the people, the big action heroes? What are they doing? They're protecting people. They're saving mm -hmm. people. They're doing the right thing. Exactly. And what do you think we need to teach our boys to help them become good men? <sighs> the, the whole bullying thing needs to be wiped out. We need to change the dynamic on what parents are teaching their children about being a man. Um, uh, I think there is uh, a, a form of toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. but I think people in this modern, very PC um, cotton wool world kind of push that a little too hard. You can be masculine without this toxicity um i don't think there's anything wrong with being a big tough guy and you know i don't think, like we swear a lot in the military nothing wrong with swearing but you treat a lady like a lady you are respectful you're honest you basically goes go back to the bible treat other treat people the way you want to be treated okay there's nothing wrong with being a big tough footballer or ufc fighter or an accountant mm -hmm. choose your path do it to the best of your ability. Be a good person. That is what a man is. The person that helps others out. And that's the same with women. Like I'm not, I'm just talking about men here, but if we were just nicer and kinder and helped each other out a lot, and I know it's hard because you get burnt a lot. I've been burnt a lot as well, but you, know, you don't have just to be a, you don't have to be a big, tough, drunk mm -hmm. dude walking around the street, punching people in the mm -hmm. head to be a man. You know, look after the little people. Yes. And you, that's part of your mission. You put yourself out there constantly, you know, living well, by example, as you say. I got to do something really outside the realm of sharks mm -hmm. recently uh, that, that really made me feel like I had more of a role than just looking after the oceans. I wanted to cross over into another realm. And myself and John Joseph got together and we created this show called 30 to Life, um, whereby we helped... Uh, a bunch of ex-convicts who were newly released from prison. Some of them were ex-murderers um, serving life sentences. And we, we got together with them, embedded them, embedded us into their lives because all they wanted was a second chance. Mm -hmm. they, they, they knew their mistakes, they'd served their time and all they wanted to do was live a better life than they had before. And so we took 30 days 
to help them create a new life, which is where the title came from, 30 to Life. We put them on an all-plant-based diet. I trained them in strength and conditioning. I trained them for a competitive 5K. Um, John helped me with the running as well because he's an amazing Ironman. Uh, we gave them meditation training, vocational training. Uh, I took them skydiving. Uh, we did all of these things to give these people an experience a 30-day experience that they might never have had the opportunity mm -hmm. to have, see the world from another angle, see how good it feels, um, and help them rebuild their life. And that's probably, hopefully, going to come out next year. Um, and that, you know, being able to switch from looking after sharks to looking after people opened up a whole new realm of appreciation for the power of just doing good deeds yes. just to help people. That's kind of become your purpose in life now. Yeah. And it's the funny thing is it gets magnified mm. every time you do these good deeds it replicates in your own life it's it's amazing how that works when i was a negative drunk smoking fighting stealing i was multiplying that negativity in my world and it kept getting worse <laughs> and worse to the point i got beat the crap out of and now I know I've seen it. Whatever you focus your energies on amplifies in your life. So why wouldn't you do good to receive good if you're going to yeah. look at it that way? And you're putting so much good energy out there, Paul. And there's a funny little thing that I don't think a lot of people know about you. And uh, we, you mentioned this when we had lunch a little while ago. You said that you're actually quite of an introvert that mm. needs a lot of time to recharge. And Absolutely. Which is kind of funny. You're the guy who jumps out of planes, uh, dives with great whites without a cage, hand feeds bull sharks, <laughs> and all that crazy stuff. Yet here you are. You're an introvert. You're a public speaker, even though you were super afraid of public speaking, like you said. So um, that gives a lot of hope to people, other introverts, uh, who are challenged with this. How do you overcome that and fit in to have a really rich life? You have to know how to conduct maintenance on yourself, whether it's physical, mental, or emotional. And I don't have PTSD from anything that's happened mm -hmm. to me. I've never had a nightmare. I've never had a flashback. And I think that's because I conducted a lot of self-care maintenance. When I get thoroughly exhausted and drained from people, I just go and spend some time on my own or I go to the park with my dog and I'll read a book or I'll go to the beach or I'll go for anything. I know what helps me. You got to know your triggers. You got to know what sets you off, what makes you happy, what makes you sad, what makes you angry. And then you embrace the ones that are positive in your life. So emotional self-care. And I think I didn't want to talk to a counselor. I never, I never really was interested in that because um, I knew how I feel and I, I felt and I just wanted to get on with life. But even though I didn't talk to a counselor, getting on stage in front of sometimes a thousand people and talking emotionally, creating an emotional roller coaster of things I went through for these people to help them feel what I went through, I think that was my therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I firmly believe in talking, talking about it. Don't, don't talk about it so much that you begin to identify with your problem and that's who you are space it out but when you're feeling pent up and struggling just get it off your chest you know talk about it 
go to start doing boxing, like just really get that energy out of your body. Otherwise you hold it inside, you compartmentalize it. It becomes this burning fire inside you that you can never release. And it just transfers into a, a horrible mindset, a horrible body, a horrible spirit that needs to be put out there in the universe set it free Mm -hmm. you know there's there's a funny thing that someone says um someone said that i heard recently anger is the punishment we give to ourselves for other people's incompetence (laughs) why would you punish yourself yeah sometimes people are frustrating i get it all the time they make me angry but i take a deep breath just get on with my life and i do that self maintenance that Mm -hmm. self-care get back to nature that's one of the biggest, hugest things I can recommend to people. Turn your phone off, leave it in the car, wander out into nature. Exactly. I mean, that's what the Japanese do with forest bathing, which which they actually can get on prescription now because it literally, <laughs> wow. no kidding. Because and it's it, free. It's, and it's free. Yeah, it's free. You <laughs> it's get your time off the forest bathing. It's the best free medication you can get. Yes. You know, something that strikes me about you is you really represent this Be Here Now, which is not only an amazing book by Ram Dass, but it's also one of the main tenets of um, the Vedic and the Buddhist philosophies. And if you compare that to the lives most people lead, they're often on autopilot. You know, you just want to get through your day and you're not really miserable, but you're also not in flow. You're just yeah. not happy. And that's the big quest of so and many I, people. I, I think it's hard to achieve when you have a normal life too, because mm-hmm. you're on you're on the treadmill a lot. For me, I'm so lucky that I have this life where my job is on a boat or it's diving with sharks or it's on stage so i don't i don't get stuck in that repetitive treadmill so i think it's it's vastly more important for those people that are doing the day in the day out the hard yards the nine to five those 80 hour weeks it's so much more important for those people to take these things on board and really take care of your your mental and emotional aspects Mm -hmm. um and, and take time out for yourself like you get so wrapped up some people get so wrapped up in looking after everyone else putting money on the uh, putting money in the bank putting food on the table putting a roof over your head they forget about themselves and they forget about what's really important yes you have to do that you got to pay the bills but don't forget why you're doing that you're doing it to provide for your family mm. your family doesn't want to have that there without you being there as exactly. well so yes. don't forget to spend time with them spend time on yourself you're doing so many amazing and inspiring things is there something we need to be aware of uh, that's coming out soon you've talked about the project with the yeah 30 prisoners. To life 30 life yeah and i know you've told me also that you're working on your next book yes yes surrounded by monsters mm-hmm. it's going okay uh i i had a lot of help from a wonderful woman called uh, susan william sue williams uh, on the first book whereby i wrote the very important parts like mm. where when i wanted to die and the pain and all that and she helped me fill the gaps by me just basically sitting around drinking beer and telling her stories <laughs> and she put it into a readable format i don't have that person at the moment so i'm kind of struggling at the moment i've written all of it but it needs a lot of modification um need a good editor I need a good editor, um, someone to sit down mm. and write it while I drink beer would be <laughs> would be really good. Um, so this is a call to action. Yeah, Any really action. great editors to, out there, to get in touch. record my stories. Yeah. Um, but I don't want it to just be about the stories for this one. I mm. want it to be 
what I do on stage. It's the stories with the lessons engraved through it, all the stuff we've spoken about, all the feelings that I have when I'm facing off against a great white shark mm. that are relevant to people in the real world as well. Um, I don't want it to be too preachy. I want it to be fun. I want it to be an emotional roller coaster. But yeah, that, that's the goal. So I'm, I'm slowly chipping away at that. Um, and then hopefully uh, I've been working at getting a, a series as well, a TV series. So that seems to be progressing quite well at the moment. Is that a docu-series like you do with Shark Week or is it a scripted one this time? Uh, no, it won't be scripted. Uh -huh. <laughs> this, what I want to do is expose incredible people to the world uh, and also at the same time, push other people past their physical and mental boundaries so that they can see and the audience can see how truly capable they are and how strong the human spirit really is. And this is really also what you exemplify in such a vast way. I've seen people give you standing ovations when you speak mm -hmm. and you don't get those because you survived a shark attack. You get those because you rose and overcame something what most people think is humanly not possible and also you shed a light onto each and every one of us showing the huge potential that is in every one of us i think i'm gonna hire you as my <laughs> no but but truly paul i mean what you're doing you're inspiring people in such a profound way you're raising public awareness uh, you know for the sharks and i love all that i love it so much but I don't, I don't see it as special. All I'm doing is living my life to the, the capacity that I can and loving every minute of it. And that's the funny thing about it. It transposes into exactly what you're saying. And you can, everyone can do this just by being happier and more giving and forgiving and smiling <laughs> and laughing and just having a good time. Like be the light that you want to see in the people around you. And I promise you it will multiply. And these are the best ending words ever. Paul, it's been amazing to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. And for everybody out there who wants to dive in deeper with Paul, you can connect with him on his Insta, Paul DeGelder, your website, pauldegelder.com. <laughs> it's all very simple. Yeah, or just or just jump right in and yeah. read his- or Twitter, Paul DeGelder, Facebook, yeah. Paul DeGelder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very easy to find. Very easy to find. <laughs> or even better, just dive into the book. You know, it's, it's yeah. a riveting ride. No time for fear. No time for fear. No time, no fear. time for that, that business. <laughs> Let's go live life. Too much stuff to do. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Cheers, man. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.